I'm really pleased to be able to be with you today, including those here and those at Stone Canyon and Vertigris and anybody who might be joining us online. I'm glad to be a part of this Proverbs series because the book of Proverbs is included in what's referred to as the wisdom literature. And I can use all the wisdom I can get. How about you? Our world can use some wisdom. Las Vegas is fresh in our minds, depicting evil and foolishness in glaring, stunning, raw clarity. We need wisdom. Our hearts go out to all directly affected by the Vegas tragedy, and our prayers go up for them and for all of us to find God's wisdom in the middle of a mess. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you are all-wise and that you offer wisdom to us. You've promised, God, that if we ask it of you, without doubting that you will provide it. And so we believe that you will do that, and we ask boldly that you would grant us the blessing of wisdom. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Now this series was kicked off last week by contrasting living foolishly and living wisely. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes... Then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Now, this is a significant verse for us today because in our pursuit of wisdom, we want to look at the contrast today between what it is to be proud and what it is to be humble. The contrast is drawn over and over for us in the book of Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 18.12 says, Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. It doesn't take long to see that the path of pride is a destructive dead end. And the words describing that path, just in these few verses that we've noted already, are disgrace and downfall and being brought low. We know it to be clear from the Word of God. That's just the way it goes. And we know it to be true experientially when we've fallen into pride, and yet we find ourselves traveling down that path way too often. I remember when my wife Deb and I were still in college, there was a blood drive going on in town, and they were asking all the students to participate. And so we went downtown to the appointed place, and we were going to do our duty, and we walked in there to go through the process, and at the desk there you had to fill out some paperwork, and as I recall, Deb was on some sort of medication that resulted in her not being able to donate that day, but she accompanied me because I was going to be able to do so. So we went into the room, and they called my name, and there were about 30 pallets, you know, where people are lying down, and they're taking the blood from them, and I got up on the pallet they had for me, and I stretched out, and we were waiting for them to start the process, and I looked at Deb, and it appeared to me that she looked a little bit squeamish. She might have a different opinion about that even to this day, but I know that I decided to be the big guy, and I looked at her, 
and I said, you know, honey, I think it's probably a good thing that you're not able to donate today because I'm not sure you could handle it. She kind of scoffed at me, and then they came and they started taking my blood. And honestly, this kind of stuff doesn't bother me. I'm fascinated by it, and I'm watching. And They finished the procedure, and they had me sit up and told me to sit there for a little while to get my bearings before going into the next room where I would sit down in a chair and drink a little juice and have a donut, and they'd make sure that I was okay before I would leave. Well, I told them, I'm doing fine. I don't need to sit here very long. I hopped off the table, and I started walking towards the other room, and I didn't even make it to the doorway before the floor started kind of moving like the surface of the ocean, and the room started spinning, and my focus wasn't great. And I, I'm just being honest with you, I'm not proud of this now. But I was prideful even in that moment because I remember vividly I prayed, oh dear God, please don't let me pass out. Please don't let me pass out. And the reason why I was praying that was because I remembered my smart aleck prideful remark to Deb just moments before. And then everything went black. And the next thing I remember I hadn't even made it to the chair I was headed for. I was lying on the floor. My feet were in the air. When my eyes opened up, my, my wife Deb's face was framed between my feet up in the air, and she was gazing down at me with a big old grin. And she said, I think it's a good thing I couldn't donate today because I'm not sure whether or not I could handle it. Well, of course, the Scriptures are true, aren't they? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And way too often in ways that are a lot more serious than that example, too often we cave into cockiness or being too big for our britches. Wisdom, on the other hand, constantly calls us to steer clear the path of pride and to make a beeline for the path to true Humility. Now notice, I said true humility. And I say that because we often have false notions or understandings of humility. We mistakenly think humility is self-denigration, putting ourselves down, or not having the ability to graciously receive a compliment. For instance, I'm the last of seven kids. I have three older brothers and three older sisters. And I remember when my sisters were dating young men. And I remember watching them get ready for a date. In other words, the process where they would beautify themselves. And back in those days, the process actually started the night before because there weren't any hot curlers or curling irons or anything like that for getting your hair pretty. You actually had to sleep on rollers. And I remember my sister sleeping on big rollers, which kind of was the hairstyle then, and complaining the next day about a crick in their neck because of all they went through. And I saw the pains they went to to beautify themselves. Uh, it seemed like it was a process of hours leading up to the time a guy would arrive for the date or at least it seemed like that's how long they tied up the bathroom in our home. 
But I remember walking by there and seeing them, and they're working on their hair, and they're working with their hair, and then they're plucking their eyebrows, and they're subjecting themselves to pain as they pluck eyebrows out to beautify themselves, and they had this contraption that they would put over their eyelashes and squeeze it together, kind of like a pair of scissors, but it would curl the eyelash, and then they'd do all the makeup stuff that goes with that. And I remember that whole process leading up to the time when a guy would ring the doorbell, time to pick up the date, and I dutifully did my job as an obnoxious younger brother, and I would answer the door and have the guy come in. Then I let my sisters know, uh, whichever one the date was for, that he was here, and it was not uncommon for them to come into the living room area, and when they did and they greeted one another, oftentimes the guy would say, oh, you look beautiful or you really look nice, or give some sort of a compliment to whatever sister it might be. And my sisters would put their head down and kind of scoff and say, oh, no, no, I don't, no, I don't, because they felt like just to say thank you might appear less than humble. I've run into this uh, in preaching, sometimes it's awkward for preachers, you know, because you preach a sermon and somebody might come up and have a kind word afterwards and they say, thank you for that message. That was a really good message. I, uh, I got to hear Matt's message from last week and I really enjoyed it. And, and if somebody came up to Matt and said, thank you for such a good message, some preachers feel like, well, they just can't say thank you because that might appear less than humble. They say, well, it really wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't come off the way I hoped it would. But, or... Or they kind of deflect the compliment by, say, well, praise the Lord, all glory to God, you know, and feel like if they just said thank you, that it might appear less than humble. But I'm simply saying to you, self-denigration and the inability to receive a compliment graciously are not true humility. Uh, if Matt were to say after you told him, great sermon, I really appreciate it, it helped me a lot, if he were to say thank you or Thank you, I appreciate your kind words. Or, Thank you, I appreciate your encouragement. There would be nothing that would necessarily lack humility in that. You can receive a compliment graciously. In fact, when we prepare a sermon, we pray that it will be useful to somebody's life. And when they say that it is, to kind of put ourselves down or be unable to graciously say thank you is kind of a facade of humility. Just say thank you. Now, if Matt were to say thank you, I'm glad you got to hear me. <laughs> it was pretty good, wasn't it? And I hope you get to hear me again soon. That might be a problem of lacking humility, but not just simply saying thank you. Well, what I want to get across is that true humility is rooted in something so much deeper and we want to explore that today so we can get off of the path of pride and on the path to true humility. So what are the markers on the path of pride? Well, the first one I'd identify is simply forgetting God, leaving him out of the picture completely. There are many people in their pridefulness who just don't think they have any need for God. Uh, among us Christians, we have a saying that's kind of popular currently, and we say, God's got this. But the prideful person would just leave him out. And when they just leave him out, basically what they're saying is, I got this. Oh, you may need God. You may need his help. But I can handle it. 
I don't need the help, thank you very much. It's a very dangerous place of pride. But another marker on the path of pride is a distorted view of God. Now, I don't think our problem so much is that we leave him out, but sometimes we've just picked up a jacked-up view of him that isn't always accurate. Do you remember the parable of the talents recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25? Jesus tells a story about a master who goes away and he gives one servant five talents, one servant two talents, and one servant one talent. You understand, a talent was a sum of money and the master was going away and expected his servants to put the money to work and try to increase it while he was gone. And he does go away for a time, and when he comes back, the servant who had received the five talents increased it to ten. And the servant who had received the two talents had increased it to four. And then in Matthew 25, 24 and 25, it says, The man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And this servant had a distorted view of the master. And very clearly, as Jesus is telling this parable, the master represents God. And many people have received from him life, and resources, and blessings that he has given freely to them and expects them to use them for his glory. That's how it works with God. But when people have a distorted view of God, they think of him as a hard God, someone who expects to receive where he hasn't sown or where he hasn't scattered seed. This is all he deserves back from me and kind of in fear and even in some sense, pridefulness. We say, here's what is yours. And we don't become the kinds of stewards of our lives that he calls us to be. And the reason is because we have this skewed view of him. He's not a hard God. He's a loving God who's poured out life on us and blessings, gives them to us freely because he wants us to be able to glorify himself and he wants us to be blessed in doing so. Well, another marker on the path of pride that's pretty common really in our culture and causes us to have a hard time seeing God is because we're focusing on self. We live, after all, in a selfie world. You've probably heard that somebody said we call them selfies because narcissistes is too hard to say. And I don't want to sound like there's something inherently wrong with a selfie. In fact, selfies are fun and selfies are fine. But an unhealthy focus on self is not because it just leads us to the next marker on the path of pride, which is an inflated view of self. For decades, we've heard a lot in our culture about the problem of low self-esteem. And there is legitimately a problem with that, and there are some appropriate answers to it. But while we've heard so much about the problem of low self-esteem among humankind, we've heard very little 
about a view of self that is higher than it ought to be. And yet God speaks to us about this. In Romans 12, 3, the Apostle Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, with a clear-minded view of self. In accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. See, sometimes we get this inflated view of self. We become preoccupied with self and we aggrandize ourselves. And we just aren't thinking clearly in such moments. My wife and I had just moved to town in Washington, Missouri. I was going to become the preacher at the first Christian church there. And within the first month that we were there, I was approached by a businessman in the community. His name was Herb Dill. He owned a plumbing company. And he said, hey, uh, would you like to join the softball team that I sponsor in the competitive City League? And I thought to myself, oh, man, that sounds like fun. I wonder uh, how he heard about my game, (laughs) that he'd even want me on the team. But I said, yeah, Herb, I'd love to do that. He said, great. And then the time came when they were distributing uniforms, and I went and picked mine up. It was all in a bag, and I took it home. And I got to confess to you, I was like a little kid getting his first little league uniform. I was so excited to try it on. So I went home, and I put on my spikes and my socks and my softball shorts, and I pulled the jersey out of the bag, and I held it up. And lo and behold, my number on the back of the jersey is Number one, baby, number one. And I put that thing on and I was strutting through the house. I went and found Deb. I'm a slow learner on some of this crazy, cocky stuff. And I looked at her and I said, hey, babe, look at my new uniform. Apparently they heard about my skills. Check it out. And I turned around and I said, numero uno, baby, numero uno. And I turned back around and she's just shaking her head. Sometimes we think of ourselves a little more highly than we ought. First game rolled around and Deb went with me. I was out on the field meeting the guys and warming up and Deb's in the stand meeting the wives and they're chatting and I'm over by the dugout and then I hear Deb talking and she's got everyone's attention. All the wives are paying attention to her and I overhear and she's telling them this story about me strutting my stuff and pointing out numero uno, numero uno, and then there's a wave of laughter from all the wives. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's more to the story. Because I'll tell you, Deb is so kind, she wouldn't throw me under the bus on that story, except for the fact, what you need to know is when we arrived at the field, here's what I discovered. Dill Plumbers Plungers, the name of our team, were a bunch of older guys who were playing in the competitive league with a bunch of younger guys. And the history is, we were kind of lucky if we ever even won a game. And if that's not enough, add insult to the injury that I'm experiencing at that moment. Part of the joke was, everybody on Dill Plummer's plungers had number one on their uniform. The joke was on me. Listen, the smallest packages in the world are people who become all wrapped up in themselves. Because when we either forget about God or have a distorted view of God 
and then start focusing on ourselves so much that we get an inflated view of ourselves, what happens is we get detached from reality, and then the marker on the path of pride is image displaces substance. In fact, some of you are probably old enough to remember a commercial that had as its byline, image is everything. And when image displaces substance, the problem is that it leads to pretense and hypocrisy and mask-wearing. And interestingly, that kind of mask-wearing in our pridefulness will absolutely wear us out. Because in a life of duplicity, see, there's, there's something missing between what the image is on the outside and what the substance is on the inside. And we become almost like a walking civil war. And the battle rages because we know the inequality between the exterior and the interior. And it's a, it's a battle that rages and casualties are horrendous. And all the while, it's heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, and exhausting when you choose to walk the path of pride. That's why it leads to the kind of things that we read in those first few verses from Proverbs. It leads to downfall. It leads to disgrace. It leads to a person being brought low. How do we get off the path of pride and on the path of true humility? What are the markers on the path of true humility. Well, the first thing I'd suggest is we need to get real. This takes some brutal honesty and self-awareness. A good prayer to help us is found in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're tired, if you're tired of being all wrapped up in yourself and if you're tired of playing a game on the path of pride, just ask God, please, God, put me on the right path. Because when you get on the path to true humility, a couple of things will happen and the dynamics in this are just absolutely astounding. One of the things that happens and a marker on the path of true humility is we see God for who He really is. Be done with our own notions about God and get a really good look at Him. Pursue a fresh, new look at the greatness of God that truly represents Him. This is crucial because when we see God for who He is, the next marker on the path to true humility that we see is to see ourselves for who we are really are. You see, when we're prideful, it prompts us to compare ourselves with others because we think maybe we can find somebody that we stack up against pretty good. But when we stand before a holy God and we see Him for who He really is, we see ourselves for who we really are. You remember the story Jesus told it's recorded for us in Luke 18, 9 through 14. It's really worth another listen. The Bible says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness 
and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. It's a very simple parable, but it sure is packed with truth. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up, and this is very telling about his pridefulness. The Pharisee stood up, and the Bible says, and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. See, he's busy keeping up the image. And he's full of himself. And Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the last marker I want to talk about on the path of true humility is this. When you see God for who he really is and yourself for who you really are, several things happen. The first is you face up. Many of you might be familiar with the prophet Isaiah and possibly Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah, the prophet of God, gets an opportunity to see God in a, a clearer way than he had ever seen him before, a different way. He's, he sees him high and lifted up and his train fills the temple and smoke fills the temple and there are angels flying around and they're all saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the temple foundations are shaking. And Isaiah is shaken to his very core. And those of you who are familiar with Isaiah 6 know what his response was. For he saw God for who he really, really was to a greater measure than he had ever seen him before. And his response was, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You see, he just faced up to who he really was in the presence of a holy God. And he was... A man who needed to beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You face up. You admit your need for God when you're on the path to true humility. I suspect most of you are familiar with the fact that the two thieves who were on either side of Jesus when he was crucified and gave himself for our sin on the cross. These two thieves, both, according to several of the Gospels, were railing at Jesus, mocking Him along with everyone else. But in Luke's Gospel, in the span of time that they were on the cross, one of the thieves went through a tremendous change. Because in Luke, the 23rd chapter, it tells us that while the other thief continued to rail and mock against Jesus, this thief who had a change of heart, a change of mind, speaks up and said, don't you fear God to the other thief? 
We deserve what we're getting. But this man has done nothing wrong. He saw in that moment, that thief saw God for who he really was. God incarnate, Jesus giving his life on the cross. And he was changed. You see, when you see God for who he really is, you cry out. You cry out because in the next breath after chastening his fellow thief, this, this thief looked at Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a statement of humility and what a statement of trust to cry out to Jesus in that moment. And this man actually believed that Jesus, who was in the middle of dying on a cross, could actually do something for him because he believed like he had never believed before because he saw God for who he really was. And he cried out. And you you know that ends well, all things considered even for that thief. But a third thing happens when you see God for who he really is. When Jesus was calling his disciples, in Gospels, Luke, he's calling some of the fishermen, and they were out fishing, and they hadn't caught anything, and Jesus told them to put down their nets, and they did it again just because he said, even though they had had absolutely no success whatsoever, and they have this great miraculous catch of fish, and that's an occasion when Peter comes, and it's recorded for us in Luke 5, 8. Peter comes before Jesus, and it says he bows down before him because he saw God incarnate like he had never seen him before. And he said, depart from me. I am a sinful man. See, when you see God for who he really is, you face up like Isaiah, and you cry out like the thief, and you bow down like Peter did. And in each instance, When the path of humility was chosen, the people involved were met by a loving, gracious God who would lift them up. Listen, disgrace that always accompanies pride can be displaced by grace that always accompanies humility. Isaiah went from, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, to after experiencing the redemptive power of God. And when God says, who will go for me? Isaiah changes from woe is me to here I am. And he was given grace and enabled to serve the Lord God Almighty. This thief who went from mocking Jesus to acknowledging Jesus and crying out to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom, heard some tremendous words for Jesus. You know what they were. Jesus looked at this guy while he's dying and he says, I'm telling you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The thief went from a seemingly hopeless situation to the pinnacle of hope because he humbled himself. And Peter who bowed down, appropriately so, in the presence of Jesus and said, depart from me, actually received grace. And Jesus said, you're going to become a different kind of a fisherman. You're going to fish for men. And Peter went from a sinful man to a forgiven man who would carry the message of redemption to a waiting world. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 speaks to the church. And this is what it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, that's the path of true humility. And this is right in the wheelhouse for the stated mission of First Church. We exist to obey Christ and to help others know, love, serve, and share Him. It starts with knowing Him and it leads to becoming like Him. So it shouldn't surprise us after we're called to this kind of humility in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that verses 5 through 11 should offer the greatest example of humility, the one who walked the path of humility, and the one whose steps we want to follow. It talks about Jesus. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not count equality with God to be something grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death. And by the way, not just any death, because there were a lot of forms of capital punishment in those days, stoning, beheading, being sawn, asunder or in two but the Bible says he became obedient unto death and then there's a dash and it says even death on the cross you understand that crucifixion was reserved as the most humiliating death it humbled someone to the greatest degree even death on a cross but it doesn't end there Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. That's the good news of the gospel, that you and I can be rescued from the path of pride, can be rescued from the lostness that we find ourselves in, and instead we can humble ourselves before the Lord, and we can be lifted up. And it's exactly what God did with Jesus. He ascended back to the Father. He's seated on the right hand. He's waiting for God to turn and say to him, Jesus, today's the day. Go get your bride. And Philippians speaks of it this way in this passage. It says, therefore, because Jesus humbled himself in this way, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and has given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is heaven's wisdom for us. Can anybody use some wisdom? Choose the path of true humility and follow hard in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for revealing yourself in your Son, the Word who became flesh and lived for a while among us, and for how he demonstrated the humility to be obedient to you and the humility to give himself on our behalf. And we praise and thank you, God, because you want to rescue us from ourselves and you want to rescue us from pride. And you call us to yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us the good sense, the wisdom, 
and the determination to humble ourselves before you so that you might lift us up. And we ask these blessings now for your glory and honor, Lord, and that your purposes could be accomplished in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.